could be deceptively simple to overcome a double patenting rejection. But the reality is that double patenting, in particular how you choose to address it, can give rise to serious ramifications. to episode 12 of Exclusive Rights. My name is Lily Zhang. I'm a partner here at Mintz and I specialize in high-tech prosecution. I'm here today with Alex Trimble, an esteemed colleague from Mintz's San Francisco office, to talk about double patenting. Hi, Alex. Thank you for joining me today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Hi, Lily. It's great to be here with you. My practice uh, focuses on pharmaceutical patents and helping those types of clients and companies protect their innovations. I've been practicing in the pharma space now for 18 or 19 years and with a few last few years here at Mintz. Perfect. Thank you again for joining me today. So although many clients will encounter a double patenting rejection during the patent application process, it is an issue that usually gets very little attention from practitioners and clients alike. The reason being that it could be deceptively simple to overcome a double patenting rejection. But the reality is that double patenting, um, in particular how you choose to address it, can give rise to serious ramifications. Hence, Alex is here with me today to shed some light on why you should give double patenting a second look. So Alex, let's start with some basics. What is double patenting? In its simplest form, double patenting is a prohibition against obtaining a second patent on substantially the same subject matter that a first patent has already been granted on. And obviously, you know, the United States Code establishes that uh, you are entitled to a patent. And so Double patenting is the doctrine that prevents you from obtaining a second patent on the same subject matter. Got it. So what are some of the requirements for finding double patenting? There's a few requirements. First, you need to have either a shared owner or applicant between the patents or applications or patent and application. So if you have a situation with multiple owners between the patents at issue, as long as there's one shared owner between the two patents, then uh, you can find double patenting. Or if there are no shared co-owners, if there's a shared inventor between the two patents or uh, again, patent application or applications, then you can find uh, double patenting. A third scenario is if the two patents are part of a joint research agreement, JRA, then you can also find double patenting there as well. Those are the just common scenarios that, that we find for double patenting. So there are two types, right? There's same invention, and then there's obviousness type double patenting. What are the differences there? Correct. Yes. So the first type is what we refer to as statutory double patenting. And that's essentially where you have exactly the same claim recited in two different patents. And usually it's, you know, do you see the exact same words in a claim between two different patents? There's a little bit of flexibility there. So for example, if one claim recites a limitation of one meter and the second claim recites a limitation of a hundred centimeters, well, that's you know, same scope, even though slightly different words are being used. So that kind of a situation still qualifies as statutory double patenting, but the scope essentially is identical. 
and we refer to that as statutory double patent because it is barred by the statute. The second type, as you mentioned, is obviousness type double patenting, and that is judge-made doctrine. And so that's where you have claims that they can overlap in scope. You can have domination by one claim over another, though that is not necessarily required. The key difference is where the differences between the claims are considered to be obvious. So for example, you could have ranges that are recited in the two different claims where the ranges don't overlap, but say they, uh, for example, abut one another, or they are substantially close that a judge may find them to be obvious over one another. Got it. So yeah, I, I really want to talk a lot, a little bit more about the obviousness type double patenting issue, because I think, you know, in terms of how you address it, I think that's where, you know, people, people run into additional issues that they don't necessarily consider at the time of the, addressing the rejection. So actually, before we get into that, I know there are some common obviousness type double patenting scenarios. Can you give some examples of those? Happy to, though. I, I think it would be useful if we just take a step back before we get into those scenarios. Mm-hmm. If we talk about some of the motivations for uh, why the judges have instituted this judge-made doctrine, right? So, so there's a few public policy issues that the judges are concerned about that motivated them to create this doctrine. And there's two main public policy concerns that drive the obviousness type double patenting uh, doctrine. The first is an unjustified time-wise extension of patent term. And this is a concern that if you pursue subject matter in a second patent or application that is substantially obvious over the subject matter of a first patent, but has a different priority date, a later priority date, then in the post-GATT world that we currently are in, then you are extending the patent term for that subject matter. And the public policy is such that that can be an unjustified time-wise extension because you're, with your first patent, you're entitled to the 20-year monopoly of patent term. But if the second application or patent is extending that monopoly past the 20-year mark, then the the judges consider that to be an unjustified time-wise extension of patent term. And so that is where the double patenting doctrine comes in to put a stop to granting that patent. The second public policy concern is, will a potential infringer face multiple lawsuits, either by a single applicant or by other applicants, on different patents regarding substantially the same subject matter. And so the judges are are very concerned about this particular issue. And so this is why they, you know, they have created this doctrine in order to make sure that if there are these post-grant litigations, that a potential infringer is just, you know, dealing with all of the potential patents or issues in substantially the same litigation. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So, you know, in light of these public policy motivation, what are some of the common scenarios that we we typically run into with obviousness type double patenting? 
Yeah, absolutely. Where we most commonly see double patenting or obviousness type double patenting is within continuations in the same family of um, a patent family. And that's because you know it is oftentimes very useful to maintain the pendency of a family for several continuations, at least with, you know within certain art units such as the pharmaceutical space, right? So there we may pursue species claims in a later continuation application or genus claims in a later or subgenus claims in a later continuation. And in those scenarios, an obviousness type double patenting rejection is entirely appropriate because you're you are pursuing substantially the same or similar subject matter within the same family and they all have a shared priority date. The where double patenting really creates issues is when you have those genus species situations in between different families. So if you have an early filed genus and then through further R&D, you identify your lead clinical candidate, which you file in a separate application with a separate later priority date, then you can expect to receive and rightly so, an obviousness type double patenting rejection in the later filed species case over the earlier filed genus case. And so that that is a, a common scenario that we also encounter. And there you would, you know, you can overcome that uh, with, you know, through argument, uh, but that is a, a common scenario. Another common scenario we encounter in the pharmaceutical space is later use claims. So for example, if you have a compound case that is filed for treating various cancers, and then in the specification, you also state that the compound can be useful for treating bacterial infections, and then you file a later application specifically drawn to treatment of bacterial infections because you have then done the studies, generated the data to support those claims, that later use case is going to run into double patenting over the earlier compound case because the specification describes the use that you are now claiming. So that is a, a very common scenario that we encounter as well in the pharmaceutical space. Yeah, we, I think I encounter some of those similar scenarios in, in high tech as well. I mean, certainly there's there's always the motivation to maintain pendency of, a, of an application, especially one that is, you know, particular commercial value to a client. A lot of times we, we file continuations not to capture just, you know, additional subject matter that's described in the specification. But a lot of times, you know, and this is where obviously this double patenting rejection comes in is to to capture better claim language, better claim scope, where, you know, there is variation in the claim language and scope. And in those scenarios, we encounter a lot of obvious double patenting rejections. I know I mentioned earlier that um, double patenting rejections, obviousness type double patenting rejections could be deceptively easy to overcome. I think the, the knee-jerk reaction is always to just to file the terminal disclaimer. So take the path of least resistance. Let's talk a little bit about that solution, terminal disclaimers. What happens? What are the legal ramifications for filing a terminal disclaimer? Yeah, terminal disclaimer is, is actually relatively straightforward. And what it does is it's an acknowledgement by the applicant that they have forfeited patent term 
for the application or patent in which that terminal disclaimer is filed. Uh, for any patent term that extends beyond the patent term of the reference patent. So for example, if you have a first patent that expires on January 1, and you have a second patent that expires on July 1 of the same year, and you file a terminal disclaimer in the second patent over the first patent, then you have forfeited six months of, of patent term in that second patent. And this goes back to the concern that the judges have about unjustified time-wise extension. So the, the doctrine is, is structured such that the judges have allowed you to obtain that second patent, but the cost to the applicant is that the subject matter of those two patents um, has to be co-pending, as it were, such that the expiration, the monopoly ends on the same day. So the judges will allow you to, or the doctrine will allow you to have that second patent. You just have to give up the term in the second patent that extends beyond the first patent. A second cost with filing the terminal disclaimer, and that is then that those two patents or applications are then linked together for licensing and, and ownership purposes. And that is, again, to avoid the situation where one of the patents gets sold or licensed to a second party, and then a potential infringer faces a suit or multiple suits on those different patents on substantially the same subject matter. So the, so the terminal disclaimer ties the two cases together and then truncates the patent term of the second patent. So I understand that it's not just ownership, but also prosecution history by filing that terminal disclaimer that you're tying those two multiple families together. I see this oftentimes in the pharmaceutical space that if you have a lead clinical candidate case and you are uh, filing secondary applications around that case on secondary subject matter, what happens if you file the terminal disclaimer in, say, that later method of use case over the earlier compound case, and yet that later second method of use case is not drawn to the primary method of use. So the earlier example we were using was anti-cancer and later antibacterial uses. Then what you need to be doing is treating that later antibacterial case as a lead clinical candidate case. You need to be monitoring the prosecution history. You just need to be careful about what is being said in there because again, you've now tied those two cases together. So it's more of a, a monitoring situation where you need to be monitoring the prosecution history of that second family and everything that is said in there because you've now tied these cases together. So what are some of the limits of terminal disclaimer though? So I guess you don't necessarily give everything away by signing one. Uh, no, you, you definitely don't give everything away by, by signing a terminal disclaimer. So the terminal disclaimer is, is truncating the patent term granted by the 20-year uh, patent term. It will truncate any patent award granted by the patent office via patent term adjustment if that patent term adjustment extends the patent term beyond the term of the earlier patent. But the terminal disclaimer will not truncate any additional patent term that is granted via patent term extension, which is an, an additional uh, patent term awarded for delays 
in approval of the drug product at the FDA. Got it. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering now, okay, when is it the right thing to do to file a terminal disclaimer? Yeah. Most common situation, as we talked about a bit earlier, is you filed a continuation or two or three or four in a family and you're getting a double patenting rejection over the earlier patents in that family. For the pharmaceutical space, it's it's the typical strategy to maintain that family or the pendency of that family via multiple continuation applications for several years. And so it is in that situation, I think entirely appropriate to get a, an obvious type double patenting when they are continuations. And then to file the terminal disclaimer in those continuations over the earlier patents. That is certainly the most common situation that we encounter. And again, a double patenting rejection is appropriate and filing the terminal disclaimer is appropriate and does not come with a a real cost there because all of those patents within the same family, since they have a shared priority date, the 20 year patent term clock is counted from the same date. And I think that, you know, I know because your your clients are, are, are mostly in the pharmaceutical space and I, a lot of my clients are in, in high tech and, you know, certainly there's a difference in, in product life cycle in these industries. How does that impact your decision as, you know, in terms of terminal disclaimers, like, you know, how important is your maximum patent term, right? Depending on your industry. I think it's very industry specific. Certainly for my clients and my practice, Uh, every day of patent term matters. And so we are always practicing in a way that is going to maximize our patent term, maximize any potential award of patent term adjustment that could be granted by the patent office, though that is becoming more and more rare to obtain those awards. But it's certainly uh, appropriate that in other art units and, and other industries, these sorts of issues really are not particularly relevant. And so I think a little bit more open to filing terminal disclaimers between families to resolve these double patenting issues is entirely appropriate. I mean, there are certainly some industries where the third or even the second maintenance fee payment is not being made. And so if if that is the industry that somebody is in, then filing terminal disclaimers between families is really irrelevant other than that issue about tying the patents, the patent families together for litigation purposes. That said, in the pharmaceutical space, because every day of patent term matters, these are really very critical issues that we pay a lot of attention to. And we are, even though our default is to file terminal disclaimers within a family, we are very careful and prefer to avoid filing terminal disclaimers between different families. These are some great points, Alex. You brought a tremendous amount of insight to the topic of double patenting today, but I know we still have a lot more to talk about. It is certainly a very rich and nuanced subject matter, which is why I hope I can have you back for another episode to dive deeper into strategies for addressing obviousness type double patenting rejections. Many thanks to you and to our listeners for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lily. 